This morning, we continue in the conversation that Jesus had with Nicodemus. Last week, we were in the dialogue portion, meaning that there was a back and forth, right? Nicodemus and Jesus going back and forth, Nicodemus asking questions. This week, we're actually going to get into a section where Jesus goes and he provides further explanation to Nicodemus. Now, he's going to do two things in this shorter section that we're going to look at this morning. One of the things he's going to do is he's going to explain why Nicodemus can trust his testimony about the new birth. This is one of the things he's going to do in terms of how he's going to emphasize that he's representing God, that he's actually representing God's message to man. He's going to convince Nicodemus, Nicodemus, you can trust what I'm saying. Then he's going to go on and begin to introduce the topic of how can you and I experience the new birth? How, if it's a spiritual birth from above, that's passive voice. We looked at that last week. It means it's done to you, not by you. How can I benefit from it? How can I come into the good of that spiritual birth if I don't birth myself? And he's going to tell us how, and we're going to look at that this morning as he kind of introduces it. But a couple of quick introductory comments One of the things that we saw with Nicodemus is he had extreme religious accomplishments. He was what one of my friends would say, he was a Jew on a stick, right? He was like the preeminent Jewish, religious, orthodox, just impressive religious guy in his day. But all of that put together, his standing in the community were not enough for him to enter the kingdom of God. He still lacked something. He lacked a spiritual birth. He lacked a birth from above, and and Nicodemus didn't make that connection. And so what Jesus did for Nicodemus, taking a a man who was an expert in Old Testament scriptures, is all throughout verses 5 through 8, Jesus gives him three allusions to the Old Testament, showing that the Old Testament taught that you needed a birth from above. These allusions to Ezekiel and, and, and the birth of Abraham and, and, uh, or the birth of Isaac and Ishmael through Abraham's life. And then the idea of the, the spirit of God bringing life. You don't know when in referencing that, that, that story in Ezekiel with the dead bones rising because of the spirit of God. And so Nicodemus was explained to this. He didn't understand. And you know what? Jesus expected him to understand. And that's why Jesus said to him in verse 10, are you the teacher of Israel? And you don't know these things? See, he expected him to make the connection because he knew the Old Testament. For Nicodemus, the preeminent teacher in all of Israel, he did not even have a biblical understanding on how someone entered the kingdom of God. That is incredible. That's like a pastor that doesn't know how to tell somebody how to get to heaven. That that should just never be said of any pastor. It's like a a doctor that can't write a prescription. That, That just doesn't make sense. You know, it's like a kicker who can't make an extra point. And um, God bless you, Brett Maher. I am praying for you tonight that that thing works out for you. If you're not a football fan, just go with the first two illustrate. Don't worry about that one. Just go with the first two illustrations. Nicodemus should have known. That's the point. Nicodemus should have known. Now, if you're like me, if you have grown up in church, you have read through John 3 a gazillion times, a bazillion times, maybe. I mean, we, we've read through it a lot. We understand this passage. It wasn't until I began to study this verse by verse that I noticed something very unique uh, in verse 11. Just want to point it out. I think you'll, obviously you'll see it in your text. Maybe you've seen it before. Maybe I'm just kind of new to the party. 
Um, but just as you study through, notice the, the switch in pronouns Jesus makes here in verse 11. Verse 11 says this, most assuredly I say to you, we speak what we know and testify what we have seen and you do not receive our witness. Isn't that, isn't that an interesting shift? It's almost disruptive to the account. It's like, wait a minute, who, who's, over, who's in this conversation with them here? And we'll kind of talk about that. But first he uses this phrase again, amen, amen. Most assuredly, he used it in verse three, uses it in verse five. Jesus is speaking with authority here. He wants Nicodemus to know, Nicodemus, I am telling you trustworthy things. You can trust me. You can believe what I'm saying. I'm connecting you to the word of God that you love, that you study, and you can see it for yourself. I'm not just making this up out of thin air, this, this desire uh, that I'm communicating to you, that you must be born again to enter the kingdom of God. And now in the next few, reason, or next few verses, Jesus is going to give Nicodemus additional reasons why he can trust the connections that he's making to the Old Testament. He's just going to continue to, to give and persuade what Nicodemus uh, needs to know. And that's the one thing I love about this passage, as you kind of read through it, Jesus has a heartfelt desire to persuade Nicodemus to believe what he's saying, and he is working hard to do it. He, he loves Nicodemus. He wants Nicodemus to get this information. He wants Nicodemus to make the connection himself and to believe what he's saying. And we will see that, that he does this in a very emphatic way in the next couple of verses. In fact, notice where he goes in his next line of persuasion. He switches Pronouns. This would have been very disruptive to the conversation. You know, I'm talking to you. We're in a back. We're in a private meeting, and it's and we're just going back and forth, having a nice dialogue. And then all of a sudden, I say, "Well, we need to say something to you." And we, you'd be like, "Who's we? Who are you talk? Like, who are you bringing into this situation?" Now, um, many people uh, have us have naturally assumed that Jesus is uh, referring to the disciples here. Now, one of the reasons I don't think that's a very strong argument is because for Nicodemus, an Old Testament scholar, this would not have been a very convincing argument. Jesus, yeah, me and these unlearned fishermen believe this. It's like not a strong argument to an Old Testament scholar, right? So I don't think that's what he's talking about there. Nicodemus may have thought Jesus was humbly referring to himself and maybe other teachers that believe the same thing like John the Baptist. We don't exactly know what Nicodemus thought. We're not we're not allowed into his mind here in the text. But the question really is not what Nicodemus thought Jesus meant, not what anyone else thought Jesus meant. The question is, what did Jesus mean when he switches pronouns? It's very significant, disruptive, if you will, to the conversation. I believe he's talking about the Godhead here. I believe that he's talking about the Trinity. I believe that he is invoking the witness of the Godhead. Why? To convince Nicodemus that he can trust what he's telling him. In fact, that's why I think in verse 13, just kind of jump ahead, um, he says, no one has ascended to heaven, but uh, he who came down from heaven, that is the son of man. In other words, Jesus is saying, I came down from heaven. I'm bringing a message from heaven. And guess what? The Trinity agrees with me. We're in lockstep unity as a Godhead. And so um, not only that, but hold your finger there. Go to John uh, chapter five. Jesus does this uh, throughout the book of John. He will invoke the witness of the Trinity. And so the idea is, is as he is speaking on earth, I'm a representative of heaven. He's saying, I'm a representative of heaven. I'm a representative of, of God because I am God. 
But he's communicating this. Now, John 5, we'll get there in a little while uh, in our study, but John 5, 36 through 38, notice what he says. I have a greater witness than John's. You, you think I'm appealing to John the Baptist, and he did give testimony of Jesus, but you know what? I got an ace card above John. You think that's my ace card. That ain't my ace card. I've got a greater witness than John's for the works which the Father has given me to finish the very works that I do bear witness of me that the Father has sent me. So the works that I'm doing is a higher level of witness than even John the Baptist. But then notice what he goes on to say, verse 37. And the Father himself who sent me has testified of me. You have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form, but you do not have his word abiding in you because whom he sent him you do not believe. And so what is Jesus doing? Well, to a Jewish mind, what did he just do? He invoked two witnesses. And what do two witnesses accomplish in a Jewish court of law? Valid testimony. And, and he trumped. And, and quite frankly, he could have included John the Baptist. He could have included the disciples. He could have included his works. He could have included God the Father. He could have included God the Holy Spirit. He had a courtroom full of witnesses he could have invoked. But he only needs two. And now... As he goes through with Nicodemus, what is he doing? He's doing the same kind of mindset. He's invoking two or more witnesses by using the word we. And notice how he uses this this testimony type language. He, He says, we speak. And presently, right now, Jesus was speaking on behalf of the Godhead. And he's speaking on behalf of the Godhead because they were completely united in what he's been telling Nicodemus. You must be born again. Nicodemus to enter the kingdom of God. And guess what? I'm not making it up. I'm not just pulling this out of thin air. The Godhead has established this truth. Not only that, but we speak what we know. And I I love this. When you think about God, because oftentimes, you know, you look at the Bible and the people, the way people uh, oftentimes just in a, in a very negative way view the Bible, they say, oh yeah, it just looks like God's making stuff up as he goes. He just reacts over here and he reacts over here and he just, he's just, he's like a ping pong ball. You never know like, you know, what you're going to get on a certain day, like a box of chocolates, right? I mean, that God's like a box of chocolates to some people. But what this tells us is that he speaks what he knows. Know is a perfect tense verb in the Greek. That's got significance. The word itself means that they knew intuitively, but they knew at a point in the past with that knowledge continuing in the present, that means nothing has ever overtaken God on this issue of salvation. Nothing has ever confused God on how sinful mankind can enter the kingdom of God or to enter eternity with God. It's always had to have been by the new birth. And this is what we see, that Godhead knows how to save mankind. The Godhead knows how to provide mankind what they lack in order to spend eternity with him. Religion doesn't know that. They don't understand that because religion comes out of stuff all over their bodies about what they've got to do and stop doing and they give you ritual and they give you performance and they give you behavior. And Jesus just shoots all of that in the water. He says, it's not about your behavior It's not about your goodness. It's not about how hard you try to get to heaven. It is about whether or not you have a spiritual birth from above. It is a divine operation from start to finish. The question for you and I, as we get to the how question, is will you trust in God's solution? God's got a solution. God knows how to save. 
God knows he's got no problem saving you. He's figured it out. He's put it together. He remains just and he remains loving all at the same time. Go figure that one out only with an infinite God. And he's great that way. And this is what we're going to see. The Godhead knows how to save mankind. And this is something, this birth from above, and this is what Jesus has been alluding to to Nicodemus in the Old Testament. It's something that God has been revealing over time all throughout the Old Testament. You just had to be astute. You just had to be looking for it. You you couldn't buy into rabbinical Judaism that just taught a works righteousness from start to finish. And this is what Nicodemus had done. He had bought into a works righteousness. Now, Jesus For the sake of Nicodemus and for the love of Nicodemus, he is going to continue to allude to the Old Testament in the next few verses. He is is trying uh, as a a masterful teacher to draw this pupil in to believe the message that he's preaching to him. He's trying to persuade Nicodemus. And so we'll see that he keeps drawing Nicodemus back to the word that's been recorded in the Old Testament. This word testify, we, I mentioned it's a, it's a courtroom term. It, it means they're giving witness to something that they have seen. And again, this was all that was needed in Jewish law. Two to three witnesses validated uh, the truth in a court of law. And this is what Jesus is referencing. And so the idea that, that Jesus is communicating here is this wasn't a brand new idea for the Godhead. This is not something that Jesus is just pulling out of his hat Uh, because Nicodemus asked him this question, they understood what must be done to save man. God understands what must be done. Here's the problem. I hate to keep picking on religion, but you know what? They're an easy target because they don't teach the truth. Much of religion is just, it, it is distracting from the truth. Tell me in any court of law how if you have a consequence of death, you can pay that off with good works. Judge, I've murdered somebody. You're giving me the death penalty. How about I just be a good person the rest of my life? That doesn't work. Because when a crime is committed, a sin has been committed, a consequence has been announced, for that judge to remain a just judge, a good judge, he must enforce the consequence. Enter the gospel. You and I deserve the death penalty. The wages of sin is death. What did Jesus Christ do for you? He died. The very penalty that you and I deserve to pay, he died for you. He was your substitute. He paid the justice in full so that now, guess what? You don't have to face justice because your substitute faced it for you. And this is how God meets his just demands. It's through that loving act that he demonstrated by sending his only son. God knows what he's doing. God knows what he's doing. Rabbinical Judaism didn't know what they were doing. Nicodemus didn't know what he was doing. I think he was sincere. I think he was genuine. He was sincerely wrong and genuinely incorrect. Because God's got a plan to meet his just demands, and it's found in the person of his dearly beloved son. And that's what we're going to read about as we go forward uh, in John 3. But you know what? This was the plan all the way back in Genesis 3.15. This is what God said. He was going to send a promised deliverer. Now, he didn't give all the details on how he was going to do it then. But you know what? God basically told him, I'm going to take care of this problem. You are not responsible to take care of this problem. I'm going to take care of it. And when I do, all I want you to do is simply one thing. Trust 
and the solution. That's all I want. And we'll see that that is how somebody is born again. All of this said to say, to me, the very next phrase is very tragic. It, it, doesn't, it didn't remain <laughs> tragic, in, as they say in legal documents, in perpetuity, right? In other words, uh, it, it didn't remain this way. But notice what the next phrase said. Jesus says, and you did not receive our witness. He's talking to Nicodemus here. The word receive means to take or receive in whatever manner. The, the idea of not receiving simply means that Nicodemus had rejected their witness. Their being who? The Trinity. Can you imagine a Jewish scholar who studied the word of God, the Old Testament, loved Yahweh so much, wouldn't even say his name, kind of removed all the vowel sounds out just so he would be careful not to take the Lord's name in vain, devoted his life to teaching others about Yahweh. And now as he's presented with truth from Yahweh, he rejects it. Just a tragic statement. Now it's clear from Jesus's comment that Nicodemus had not been persuaded at this point. And in all fairness to Nicodemus, the dude was probably in shock. I mean, let's give him a little, let's cut him a little slack. I mean, you know, you, you've spent your entire life studying the scriptures. And, and basically in one meeting, Jesus has completely slashed his theology. Completely slashed his theology. Taking the very things that to Nicodemus would have been the elementary teachings of Judaism And Jesus said, you don't even have the ABCs right, Nicodemus. You don't even have one plus one right, Nicodemus. I mean, imagine how you would feel if you found out the same about some area that you were regarded as an expert in, that you didn't even know the basics. And this is exactly what Jesus had told Nicodemus. He didn't even know one of the most key things. He was a rabbi and he couldn't even tell a Jewish person how you got into the kingdom correctly. That's terrible. I, it's tragic. And so, you know, what's so ironic is, is Nicodemus comes to Jesus early on in this meeting. We don't know what was in Nicodemus's mind. He never gets a question out. We pointed that out. He might have thought, man, he was coming to speak to this rabbi about the finer details of Jewish theology. And Nicodemus is like, okay, before we get to calculus, you got to stand out. You got to understand how to add. I mean, Nicodemus came in, oh yeah, let's talk about some calculus problems. And Jesus is like, no, one plus one equals two. (laughs) Let's start there, Nicodemus, because you don't even have that right. And you can imagine how he must have been just blown away. So not only had he not received the the witness of the Godhead, but here's another interesting pronoun switch. And these are just things that are just fascinating to observe as you're going through this this text. Because here at the end of verse 11, you know what's, what's fascinating about it is that Jesus is going to switch now to plural pronouns, you. So he did that for himself, we, speaking of the Godhead, and now he's going to say, you, Nicodemus, and those you represent, all y'all, we might say in the South, right? So all y'all, he switches to second person plural form of you in verse 12. Um, actually, here at the end of verse 11 and then all throughout verse 12, he's going to use this plural pronoun. And what that tells us is this, is that this early on in Jesus's ministry, the Jewish religious elite was already rejecting him. Already. They weren't taking these signs into consideration. They weren't taking any of that into consideration. They had just determined in their mind they're going to reject him. And this is what we see. They had not received him. You, all y'all, Nicodemus, you and who you represent, You have not received the testimony. Now, the good news about Nicodemus, John 19, 
39, looks like Nicodemus finally got it. Looks like Nicodemus finally put his trust in Christ. He, he honors the dead body of Jesus. He and Joseph, they take the body, they prepare it for burial to great personal expense to Nicodemus. And so that's a, an act of worship, I think. And so he probably got it at that point. And so praise God that Nicodemus got it. But you know, most of the nation didn't. That's what we already covered that. But John 1:11, he came to his own and his own received him not. Same word. They didn't receive him. They rejected everything about Jesus Christ and his testimony. Now, verse 12, as I mentioned, he sticks with the plural pronouns here. What he's saying is, if I have told you all, you Nicodemus and those you represent, earthly things and you don't believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? And so the question is, what what are earthly things? Well, you just go to the context. What's he been talking about? He's been talking about the spiritual birth from above, the new birth. And so he refers to the new birth as earthly things. It's something that takes place on earth. It's something that he alluded to to explain with earthly examples, right, in, in verses 5 through 8. And so he's most likely calling the new birth earthly things. And, and the, the real, the, the, the sense of verse 12 is if I've talked to you about simple things that you should already know, Nicodemus, and you're struggling with that, how are we going to talk about really complex spiritual things. It's kind of the idea that's being communicated. If Nicodemus couldn't handle that, the question is, how can you handle heavenly things? And at this point, the the narrative, Nicodemus wasn't even believing what Jesus was saying. So how could he handle even more things that might be a little bit more abstract or take a little bit more comprehensive understanding and placing together for him to understand? And this is what Jesus says. And so many times rejection of revelation, it limits our ability to receive additional revelation. If, if we're stiff-arming God off a left tackle, we've got a hard heart. We're not willing to receive correction. Uh, you know, the, 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 the probably the most popular Bible interpretive method that exists in our culture today is, I like that verse. I'm going to believe that. I don't like that verse because it makes me uncomfortable. I'm going to reject that. And people say, well, that, that part was probably mistranslated. I love how the parts that we don't like, those are probably the parts that were mistranslated or mishandled. The parts we like, we'll just embrace till no end. It's not a good Bible interpretation model. When you reject truth, it tends to shut you down from additional understanding. And so this is kind of what Jesus is telling him here. What is Jesus taught? What heavenly things? We don't actually know. We don't know what Jesus had in mind. We could speculate. Might have been more details on the kingdom. Might have been this connection. This was a lot of uh, Jews were confused over this because in the Old Testament, you had prophecies about a coming king, but then you had prophecies that that coming king would somehow suffer and die. And you're like, how does that fit together? I mean, if he's going to be a king, he's reigning, who's going who's to cause him to suffer? And so the, the Jewish mind of the day oftentimes would just put the suffering passages aside and say, we're just going to kind of ignore those. Not sure what to do with those. Let's just talk about the king, though. That's, let's talk about good news. You know, he's coming to reign. He's going to kick the Romans out. You know, et cetera, et cetera. And so now, in verse thirteen, such an interesting verse. It's short. It doesn't look like there's much there. But when you, I think, when you see what Jesus is saying, the context of the conversation, who he's talking with, we're going to see some additional Old Testament allusions here. Again, he's, he's still working to convince Nicodemus. He loves Nicodemus. He wants him to see what he's saying. And so in verse 13, he's going to allude to more Old Testament uh, stories and passages. Why? So that Nicodemus will trust him in what he's saying. 
So he'll be convinced that he can trust what Jesus Christ is saying. And so verse 13 says this, no one has ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven, that is the son of man who is in heaven. And so we've got a a short uh, but action-packed verse, as as I'm going to try to bring out here uh, as we study through, but no one ascended. Ascended means no one's gone up from a lower place to a higher place. It's used uh, in the perfect tense. Again, it's the idea is no one's gone up to heaven and stayed there and then sent a message back to us is what Jesus is saying. No one's done that. No other teacher No other witness had ever ascended to heaven and then brought back heavenly things or earthly things from heaven and then sent the teaching back. This is what he's saying. No one's ascended to heaven, but guess what? Although that's never happened, guess what has happened, Nicodemus? Someone came down from heaven. Someone brought a divine message down to you. And again, descend, uh, came down just means to descend from a higher or lower place. And who's the one who came down? Now, this is very significant because, again, who is he speaking to? What would his audience, in this case Nicodemus, have understood? But who has come down from heaven? He identifies himself as the son of man. Notice that. In fact, I'm going to bring something out again in 14. But notice that Jesus sticks with that description of himself in verse 13, the son of man. Verse 14, even so must the son of man be lifted up. Now, for the average English reader, I mean, for those of us that grew up, grew up in church, I would ask for a raise of hands, but I, I think I already know the answer. But for those of us that grew up in church, um, we've probably heard this, this comment that when you see son of man in the Bible, Jesus referring to, that it, it's referring to Jesus's humanity. Anybody heard that? Probably heard that. And then when you see son of God, it's referring to Jesus's deity. I would disagree with that, that statement. And I'll tell you why. Because when you look and you go back to Daniel 7, 13 and 14, you look at the reference to the Son of Man from the Old Testament. We're talking about the Messiah. And it comes out really clear. Daniel 7, 13 through 14 says this. I was watching, this is Daniel writing. I was watching in the night visions. And behold, one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days, God the Father, And they brought him near before him. And then to him, the son of man was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people's nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, the one which shall not be destroyed. See, this is a clear reference to to Jesus being the Messiah. And oh, by the way, The one who's talking to you right now, Nicodemus, is the son of man prophesied about in in Daniel 7, 13. And if I'm going to reign in the kingdom, I think I know what it takes to get into my kingdom. That's kind of the, the thrust of what he's communicating with Nicodemus. Nicodemus, you can trust me. You can trust my testimony about this situation. I am not steering you wrong. The ancient of days in the future one day is going to give me reign over the kingdom and I know how you get in. And I'm telling you, we've been revealing it to you through the Old Testament scriptures all this time. Nicodemus, you can trust what I'm saying. And this is why, again, his testimony could be trusted and why his testimony represented the Godhead. Now, if that's not a big enough illusion, the son of man, go back in verse 13, and notice this terminology, ascended to heaven, descended from heaven. 
very, I, again, it's, it's subtle, but again, when talking to a Jewish person, Nicodemus in this case, remember, even, even young boys at, at this stage in history, many, many of the young men who were bar mitzvahed, like we're talking age 13, would memorize the entire Torah. Let me say that again. They would memorize Genesis 1-1 all the way through the book of Deuteronomy. And like I said, I mean, it's great. I'm impressed with our kids, the verses they're memorizing on Wednesday night, but they're not memorizing the Torah. I can tell you that much. They're, they're knocking down a couple verses a week. Praise God. I'm not minimizing that. But I'm just saying that he is talking to a man who, when, when he uses this terminology, probably would pick up on some of this illusion. And so what else is Jesus alluding to here? I believe he's alluding to Deuteronomy chapter 30. I want us to turn there. So kind of, kind of make your way to Deuteronomy 30. Hold your finger in John. Because in Deuteronomy 30, as the nation of Israel is getting ready to enter the promised land, um, and they're kind of, re- you know, the, the word Deuteronomy is really the second giving of the law. It's as they're getting ready to go into the promised land after their wilderness wanderings. And in Deuteronomy 30, uh, verses 11 through 20, Moses is given the, the word of God to provide an encouragement to the people to do what? To choose life. Don't choose death. Choose life. And we're going to see that's exactly where Jesus is going to go in John 3. You, when you trust in Jesus Christ, you are choosing life. When you reject Jesus Christ, you're choosing death. It's going to be the same kind of concept here. Let's just read through this because I want you to see some of the similar kind of terminology here and why this may have been one of the things that Jesus was alluding to. Deuteronomy 30, 11. We won't read the, the whole passage. I'll jump around a little bit. But verse 11. For this commandment which I command you today is not too mysterious for you, nor is it far off. Now, what does he mean by that? It's not hard to understand. Is that, isn't that what we just told Nicodemus? Nicodemus, you should know these things. This is... This has been recorded. It's not hard to understand. Verse 12, it's not in heaven that you should say, who will ascend into heaven for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it? Nor is it beyond the sea that you should say, who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it? But the word is very near you in your mouth, in your heart that you may do it. Verse 15, see, I've set before you today life and good, death and good. And evil. And then just jump down with me to verse 19. I call heaven and earth as witnesses. See, the two witnesses, right? The, the, the testimony, right? Jesus has just been talking about that. Against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life that both you and your descendants may live. And again, notice all of the similar words and concepts between what Jesus has been talking to Nicodemus about, where he's going to go with Nicodemus in Deuteronomy 30. Ascend. Descend. These are all, it's not too mysterious for you, nor far off. You, you should understand this. Perish. It's going to be talked about here in John 3, 15 and 16. Multiple witnesses dwelling in the land, entering the kingdom, right? All of these things are found in both places. So again, another allusion to say, Nicodemus, this is not a hard decision. It, you don't have to run around the temple 500 times to enter the kingdom. You don't have to do 500 push-ups. You don't have to raise your hand, walk an aisle, pray a prayer. 
None of those things, Nicodemus, it's, it's simple because the work is going to be done for you, and all you have to do is trust in the one that did the work for you. It's simple. And we're going to see that's how you choose life. So again, it, it just, it's like bleeding off the page, Jesus' heartfelt desire for Nicodemus to get this, to really understand this. But Nicodemus at this point was still not making the connection. We can go back to John chapter 3 now. Just in time to turn back to Numbers right next to Deuteronomy, but we'll do that in a second. But it's, it's from this frame of reference that Jesus now finally gets to the how question. If Nicodemus was wondering, well, okay, you're saying I got to be born again. How, do, how does that happen? You know, how, how can I be born again? Jesus is going to give another specific Old Testament reference to Nicodemus to explain the how, to begin to introduce how he can see the kingdom of God. And so that brings us to verse 14. And so verse 14 says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And so he references this Old Testament story. I want us to to go ahead and turn to Numbers 21. So go ahead and hold your finger uh, again to Numbers 21. It's nice on these days that we have 10 fingers because we're going back and forth a little bit, but I want to see this because he's going to use this Old Testament story to illustrate the response required of man to be born again. And we'll kind of walk through this systematically. Let's just read the story and then we'll come back and make some comments on it. Numbers 21 verse 4. Then they journeyed, speaking of the nation of Israel, from Mount Hor, by the way of the Red Sea, to go around the land of Edom. And the soul of the people became very discouraged on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and our soul loathes this worthless bread. So the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, uh, and many of the people of Israel died. Therefore, the people came to Moses and said, we have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he may take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. Verse eight, then the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent, set it on a pole, and it shall be that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent, put it on a pole, and so it was, if a serpent had bitten anyone, when he looked at the bronze serpent, he lived. And so this is where Jesus goes to further explain everything he's been saying to Nicodemus. Verses four through five, we see that the Israelites were discouraged and they complain against God and Moses. That was just an average day for Israel (laughs) in the wilderness. They did a lot of complaining and grumbling. So it was very, very much what was expected of them or what was uh, exemplified in them during those 40 years of wandering. Uh, But this time, God sent an immediate punishment. And that punishment was fiery serpents. They were, as we see from the text, they were fatally poisonous snakes. People who were getting bit were actually dying. It was very serious. And what we can can detect from the passage, although it's implied, is that there was no solution. They, they, they couldn't figure out how to save themselves. And this is why in verse 7, they recognized that this was a divine judgment because where do they go? They go to Moses. They're like, Moses, help, man. 
send up an SOS. Like we are in big trouble. We know we've messed up. In fact, what a, what a great model of what confession of sin looks like in the Israelites' response. They just named it, didn't they? They just said, we complained against God. We complained against you. I mean, they, they called it what it was. They didn't just say, oh, we were just a bunch of sinners, you know. Oh, was, you know, I wasn't perfect. No, they called it. They, they confessed it specifically. And they came to Moses to help them. And because of this, because they said this is a divine judgment, they recognize at some point only God can deliver us. Only God can get us out of the bind that we have put ourselves in. So they asked Moses to communicate with God and hopefully give them a reprieve. And then we see this instruction, a little odd. Go ahead and make a bronze serpent, Moses. Put it on a pole. Lift it up within eyesight of the ones who are bitten. And if they'll look at the pole, they'll live. They'll be healed. No medicine. No super sucker machine invented. No plant to rub on the wound. Put a pole on it. Put a, put a serpent, bronze serpent on a pole. Lift it up. And if they'll just look at it, he says they'll live. And so this is the story. Out of all Old Testament stories that Jesus picks to illustrate how somebody can benefit from the new birth or how somebody can gain or be affected by the new birth. This is the story he uses. And so let's make some general statements so that we can kind of make a connection to what, where Jesus is going with this, especially that next phrase in verse 14. If we could simplify with some general statements, the Israelites had a problem. The problem was simple. Deadly poison administered by fiery snakes. That was their problem. And it was deadly in the sense that they couldn't solve it. It didn't matter how, how hard your best friend tried to suck the poison out of your wound. It was not going to happen. Once you were bit, the inevitable result was death. So they had a problem. God had a solution. And his solution, as I mentioned, was not medicine. It wasn't creating a new plant. This is where aloe vera was invented, where he rubs aloe vera or the leaf on their wound. He put a bronze serpent on a pole. And the solution was, Moses, hold that thing up. That was the solution. Now, you can imagine, I mean, if an Israelite was like, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. (laughs) How is that going to take care of my snake bite? That's ridiculous. Why would I even waste time looking at that when I could be working on getting the poison out of my wound? And you know what? An Israelite that thought that would have died on the spot. They would have eventually died, not believing God's solution. And so they had a problem. God had a solution to their problem, but the Israelite must personally trust in God's solution to be saved from their problem. That was... That was this look. In fact, to look at the bronze serpent requires me to do what? Look away from myself. To look at God's solution requires me to stop trusting in myself. To look at God's solution means that's my only hope. I'm trusting in what God has provided through this serpent on the pole. Moses said that God told him to do it. I believe Moses' word, and I'm looking at that pole. And that was the decision every Israelite had to make. Now, we're going to see again that Jesus is using this to illustrate the how of being born again. How does it apply to what Jesus is talking about, the new birth? Well, in like manner, all of mankind has a problem. We've 
alluded to that a, a number of times this morning, but just to spell it out, our problem's twofold. We, we've got a righteousness issue. In other words, none of us possess a righteousness equal to God's righteousness, nor can we ever possess that through our own efforts or labor or religious do-gooding. We can never reach that level of perfection. We all know that. I mean, everyone in here, I think, would honestly say, yeah, I'm not perfect. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> That's perfect righteousness is when you're perfect. Nobody ever has reached that level. That's a problem. Because it brings about our second problem. When you're not perfect, the consequences of breaking God's law is death. And death can only be paid by death. That was not a trick question. I mean, but, but for most religious minds, that's like a trick question. It's a very simple question. Death is paid by death. Death can only be paid by death. It's a very simple equation. That's our problem. We don't have a righteousness equal to God's righteousness, and we need it to get into heaven. We got this death penalty hanging over us that has to be paid. That's our problem. That's why no one deserves to go to heaven. I don't care what kind of grandma they are. I don't care what kind of chocolate chip cookies they make. I don't care how sweet they smell. Nobody deserves to go to heaven because of this problem. But in like manner, God has also provided a solution. That's the message we get to preach every single week and hopefully rejoice in every single day of our life. This solution, Christ died for your sins and he rose again. Rising again shows us that God the Father accepted his death in your place. You can trust him. And only that, but when you trust him, the Bible says that God credits Jesus's righteousness to your account. I kind of like that one. The, the man who walks on water, his righteousness gets credited to my account. And I feel like saying, God, have you ever seen a day of my life? I'm not righteous. <laughs> I still do things that I'm ashamed of, embarrassed of. And yet, because I trust in God's solution, he credits his righteousness to my account. What grace, what grace is that? So God's provided a solution. But again, in like manner, each one of us must personally trust in God's solution to be saved from our sins. This is how somebody's born from above. Got a problem? God provided a solution. Will you trust in God's solution or not? That's the question. Will you choose life or will you choose death? And see, too many people are trying to hedge their bets. Well, I kind of like Jesus, but I'm going to do these religious things too. You know what that's saying? God, God you, you kind of did okay, but I'm going to do my own thing too. It, it is an affront to the finished work of Jesus Christ to think that way. It, it, it's all or nothing. It's, if it was a poker game, like all those chips need to go in the middle on Jesus Christ. That's what we're talking about, resting and trusting in him alone. You know, you can imagine an Israelite trying to like one eye on the serpent and one eye on the guy sucking the poison out of his leg. I mean, he's not trusting in God's solution, right? He's, he's hedging his bets. He's like, well, if God fails, I got a backup plan. You don't need a backup plan when you've trusted in the Son of God. That's the message of the Bible. And so as a quick clarification, as we kind of wrap up verse 14 this morning, a couple of quick clarifying questions. And and I don't mean to, this is not done to be um, 
smart, a smart aleck at all. It's just designed to get us thinking. And it's really designed to set the stage for next week when we start looking at John 3.15 and John 3.16 and that response of man to believe, okay? But just some clarifying questions. Um, did the, in the story of Numbers 21, did the dying Israelite have to continue to look at the serpent for the rest of their lives to stay saved from the snake bites? Or was it a moment in time, once for all, salvation from the poison? What, I mean, what do we get from the story? Right when they looked, what happened? Healed. It wasn't like, and then they're walking down this, the street 10 days later, and they're like, oh, I feel that pain in my leg. Where's that bronze serpent again? Let me go, let me go look at it again, right? No, it was a moment in time. It was transactional. The moment they trusted in God's solution, God gave them the solution. He didn't deal it out a little bit here and a little bit there. You know, like we would do with our dog and the trick. I feel bad for my dog. There's like this small piece of beef jerk and we break it in like 400 pieces and make him do like 400 tricks for one piece. God's not like that, right? What a terrible illustration. <laughs> but God's not like that, right? He's, he's not doling out his solution in bits and pieces. That's why when you get to verse 15 and 16, you just gotta, we got to take God at his word. He makes some incredible promises, the moment somebody believes. And you're like, how can he do that? People are going to take advantage of that. How can he make these promises not knowing how they're going to behave in the future? And I'll tell you how he can do it because the work's already been finished. Amen. That's what he bases his promises on. Not on what you're going to do 20 years from now, but what Christ did for you 2,000 years ago. That's what he bases his promises on. And so we're going to see that as we go through. Um, also, by the way, who is the bronze serpent available to? And we saw it in the numbers account. Anyone who would simply look at it. Not a chosen few. Not Moses' family and best friends. Not the people that Moses liked. He probably didn't like a lot of those people. They were probably irritants <laughs> to him. The ones complaining. It was available to anyone who would simply what? Pay more money to the temple? Promise to come more to you know, temple service? And no. Anyone who would simply what? Look at God's solution. Moses was just a messenger. This is all about God and providing for them what they needed in that moment. And all Moses had to do was just stand there and hold it up. Hold it up. This is all Moses had to do. You know, Jesus again uses this illustration. The birth, new birth, is, is by definition, a moment in time event, not an ongoing process. First John 5, 1 backs that up. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and everyone who loves him, who begot, also loves him, who is begotten of him. Both of these verbs in the Greek, is born, is begotten, perfect tense, that means you were born at a time in the past. At a point in time in the past, you were born. And every mother in the room says, glory, hallelujah. That birth is not a long process. Well, I mean, the birth, yeah, leading up to it is, labor is, but birth is not. Once you give birth, it's over. It's a one-time event. But you know what? This tells us spiritually that when you're born again, it's a moment in time, and you remain part of God's family. You remain a child of God. You remain born is, is the idea that's being communicated. Now, go back to verse 14. We want to finish this up. Look at that last phrase. This is what Jesus is comparing to. So as Moses lifted up, the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man 
be lifted up. And so what is that speaking of? Do we want to allow, you know, the context to kind of communicate that to us? I'll just tell you out of the shoot. I, I believe he's talking about the death that Jesus would die being lifted up on a cross. But in terms of backing that up from the scripture, we just turn to John 12 and I'll pull it up on the screen. Um, this is Jesus speaking here. He says, and I, if, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to myself. And this is what I love about the book of John is all these later editorial comments to help us to explain what he was saying. And John says, this he said, signifying by what death he would die. So later in the book of John, Jesus uses the same terminology, being lifted up to describe what? His death on the cross. And so this is exactly what Jesus is pointing out, that his death on the cross is equivalent to the bronze serpent in the story. He is God's solution. This is why Simeon in the temple, when Jesus is brought in to be circumcised, he holds the baby and he says, this is God's salvation. A person, a little baby. Jesus Christ is salvation because of who he is and what he would accomplish. Now, as a quick side note, I mentioned this earlier, but the fact that Jesus uses the phrase here in verse 14, son of man, may have confused Nicodemus even more. Because as I mentioned, son of man is a reference to Daniel 7, 13, and 14, which speaks of what? A coming, reigning, powerful king. And now what does Jesus say in verse 14? Even so, the son of man must be lifted up. He must die in the place of those as God's solution for people that have a problem. That probably, we don't get into that much in the text because Jesus is finishing that probably blew the mind of Nicodemus. The son of man is going to be lifted up? I know the son of man is going to be king. And so again, just another area that probably blew his mind. What is the main point here in verse 14? As the dying Israelites were to look by faith in God's word uh, at the serpent on the pole to live, so must the world, each individual, look by faith at Jesus Christ on the cross to be born from above and live eternally. And I, you know, just to close this morning, and there may be some, I, I know many of you in this room have already trusted in Christ, and there may be some online that, that also have trusted in Christ, but there may be someone who hears this message that's never trusted in Jesus Christ. And I want you, if you're here this morning, you're joining us online, I want you to know that God doesn't want to send anybody to hell. You need to know that. Religion loves controlling people and manipulating people and telling people they're gonna go to hell when they don't do things that they want them to do. God doesn't want to send anybody to hell. He's gone through great lengths, just like Jesus did with Nicodemus here, to convince you and to persuade you. If you will just look to God's solution, God says, and we're going to see that next week, you will never perish. You never have to face the death penalty, and you will possess eternal life if you'll simply trust in God's solution, Jesus Christ dying for your sins and rising again. You'll have eternal life, and eternal life is something you can't lose by definition. Because if you can lose it after 20 years, it's not eternal. This is God making the promises. So may each one of us be persuaded. Those of us who have already believed that message, it's awesome hearing about your hero, isn't it? And what he accomplished. And so just rejoice in that truth uh, this morning. Let's close there with a word of prayer. Lord, thank you for Jesus Christ and what he accomplished for us. And I appreciate just even a, a glimpse into his heart this morning for mankind, for sinful man, not only religiously sinful man, but as we know from the scriptures, he loves even immoral sinful man. 
And, and he loves any sinner that does not qualify for heaven so much that he gave his own life for us. And so we are so grateful to him. We cannot sing his praises enough. And so we just rejoice in the finished work of what our Savior accomplished 2,000 years ago this morning. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.